I consider myself to be a speaker who needs no introduction and begin this lecture by looking at some of the patterns of book collecting in mid-19th century America, then cross the Atlantic to watch a great many old books being sold, either directly or indirectly, to Yankees in the 1880s and somewhat thereafter, finally returning to the United States to work on my income taxes in order to see what happened to those books after they got to America. By 1876, the greater part of the libraries of the giants of Americana collecting had been formed. Peter Force had already sold his massive accumulation of printed and manuscript materials to the Library of Congress. John Carter Brown had died in 1874 after a collecting career of more than 40 years. James Lennox, Brown's principal rival for Americana Nuggets, had given his great collection to the city of New York, built a library to house it on Fifth Avenue, the site of the present Frick Museum, and was thinking about providing public access to the books. The 1876 Menzies sale, primarily of Americana, realized more than $48,000, the highest total thus far achieved by an American book auction. George Brinley, with Force, Brown, and Lennox, one of the preeminent collectors of Americana of his day, had died in 1875, and his matchless library would be auctioned off over the next several years, beginning in 1879. Lyman Draper was well along in his documenting of the American movement west with his relentless collecting efforts for the Wisconsin Historical Society, while in California, Hubert Howe Bancroft was continuing to expand the scope of his enormous collections dealing with the North American Far West and Southwest. In 1876, for example, he absorbed most of the E. George Squire Library of newspapers, books, pamphlets, and manuscripts dealing with the history of Central America. American collectors probably dominated the international market in Americana by 1876, but they had no more than a modest impact on most other book collecting areas at the time. There were, and had been, American collectors interested in materials other than Americana. William Menzies, for example, excuse me, William Mackenzie, for example, who collected French and English incunables. George Tickner, who had a splendid collection of Spanish and Portuguese materials. Thomas Pennett Barton, whose 12,000 volume collection of English literature, especially Shakespeare, was described as the best of its kind in America by Horace Furness, the editor of the Shakespeare Variorum, and also William Menzies himself, whose preoccupation with Americana did not prevent him from collecting early printed books in Scottish literature. But the great push into areas besides Americana was just getting underway in the later decades of the 19th century. American book collecting in the period before 1876 had tended to be a fairly low-profile pursuit. The Americana materials collected were valued for their content and for their interest as cultural artifacts. But by and large, the printed books were not lovely to look at and the manuscripts even less so. Indeed, they tended, unless elegantly rebound, to be positively unhandsome and aesthetically unpleasing, valuable to their possessors and scholars, perhaps, but objects with little entertainment value to casual beholders. American book collecting in America in 1876, even of Americana, was difficult. There was a paucity of bibliographical guides or catalogs to establish rarity or guide purchases, and there were few antiquarian booksellers. 
and fewer still competent ones, especially outside the northeastern United States, to help make up for the lack of such guides. The best-known dealers were Joseph Sabin, who dominated the New York trade during this period. He was the auctioneer at the Menzies sale. And Henry Stevens of Vermont, who had been in, based in London since the mid-1840s, but whose star was now setting. There was an active American auction trade in the 1870s, and the tempo was increasing as older collecting patterns changed. Time was when American book collecting had tended to stay either in the family or the results given or sold to institutions. The libraries of James Logan, Thomas Prince, Isaiah Thomas, William Mackenzie himself, Thomas Dowes, George Tickner, Peter Force, John Carter Brown, and James Lennox come to mind. But prices of old books began rising in the 1860s, and after a dip during the early 1870s, continued to rise, sharply so towards the end of the decade. American libraries were now worth more, and they tended increasingly to be sold rather than to be given away by deed or bequest. The American collectors who flourished in the final quarter of the 19th century, they composed what I call the second generation of collectors in this country, were a more diverse lot than their mid-19th century countrymen, and some of their names are still familiar, at least to American bibliographical ears today. Samuel Putnam Avery, Theodore Irwin, and Theodore, and Theodore Lau Divini, born in the 1820s. Adolph Sutro, General Rush Hawkins, Joseph Drexel, E. Dwight Church, William Loring Andrews, Augustine Daly, and Robert Ho, born in the 1830s. General Brayton Ives, Edward Eyre, John Henry Wren, Frederick French, and Hamilton Cole, born in the 1840s. And Eugene Field, William Arnold, and Abby Pope, born in the 1850s. This, the second great generation of American collectors, continued to collect Americana. Indeed, the field remained one of the two most widely collected areas, the other being English literature, throughout the last quarter of the 19th century and the period before World War I. But rises in prices, both in America and Europe, encouraged collectors, even rich ones, to specialize, as did, for example, Edward Eyre, who assembled an important collection on the American Indian, which in 1910 became the foundation of the Eyre Collection at the Newberry Library in Chicago. Brayton Ives collected rare Americana, as well as important books over a broad range of European subjects, early printed books, he owned a Gutenberg Bible, Voyages and Discoveries, first editions of classic texts, fine printing and famous printers, English literature, and so on, as well as illuminated manuscripts. He owned the great 15th century Pembroke Hours, bought at his sale in 1891 by someone whose collecting range was even broader than his, Robert Hoe. Mrs. Abby Pope was a high spot collector, celebrated especially in England as the owner of the 1485 Caxton Mallory, which she acquired at the Osterley Park sale in 1885, where she paid, incidentally, two agents' commissions, one of 10% to her usual dealer, uh, uh, B.F. Stevens of Henry Stevens of Vermont, to bid for the book, and another commission of 2.5% to Bernard Quaritch not to bid on the book. General Rush Hawkins put together an important collection of incunables designed to illustrate the spread of printing. His collection is now part of a memorial to his wife, Anne Mary Brown, in Providence. 
Samuel Putnam Avery collected fine bindings and books about bindings. He gave the latter to Columbia University in 1903. <coughs> Hamilton Cole was an extra illustrator interested as well in book illustration and books on books. He had a, a large Richard DeBury collection. The theatrical impresario Augustin Daly was a passionate collector and another extra illustrator of books dealing with the English and American stage. He also had a good Shakespeare collection. Theodore Irwin of Oswego, New York, had first-rate illuminated manuscripts in early English literature, again, especially Shakespeare. He sold his collection on block to J.P. Morgan in 1900. E. Dwight Church collected a relatively small number of very important books in the fields of English and Americana. Taking Frederick Locker Lampson's Rofant Library is his model. Indeed, he purchased the Rofant Library in 1905, keeping what he wanted and then disposing of the duplicates to Henry Huntington and others. John Henry Wren collected contemporary English first editions, some of them rather more contemporary than was then generally realized as Carter and Pollard were to point out in 1934. William H. Arnold specialized in 19th century American literature long before it became fashionable. Frederick French of Boston collected modern fine printing. He had a complete set of Kelmscott press publications. As you'll see even from this brief catalog, the collecting interests of the American second generation, those whose collections began and prospered in the last three decades of the 19th century, were broad ones. But note how often English, as opposed to American ballet, occurs as one of their areas of collecting specializations. They were an Anglophilic lot. It is interesting to contemplate from the vantage point of almost immediately subsequent collecting patterns what the second generation of American collectors tended not to collect in the last decades of the 19th century. They did not collect the history of science and medicine, post-age of discovery maps and atlases, they did not collect industrial archaeology, 18th century English literature, domestic science in the useful arts, Judaica, or children's books, or living writers, especially living American writers. They did not collect social history and ephemera. They did not collect books about books. Most of them were uninterested in non-splendid books, that is to say, meat and potatoes items useful for their content, rather than desirable for their rarity, primacy, or beauty. They did not, by and large, assemble collections of books with any intention of reading them. Nor, in any event, were many of the books they bought particularly readable. Early Bibles, first important or interesting editions of the ancient classics, early typography, early and generally obscure English literature, books in valuable bindings, large plate books, 19th century novels in their original fragile parts, products of American private presses, and so on. American book collectors frequently bought books whose charm lay primarily in their rarity. Elizabethan drama, for example, including early plays whose literary importance was tertiary at best, or the obscure and ephemeral works of writers well known for other and better titles. The second generation of American book collectors also bought books because of their beauty, they tended to be increasingly fussy about condition, unnecessarily so in the view of Bernard Quaritch, the son of the founder of the firm, who was on his first business trip to New York City in 1890 when he wrote home to his father in London, people are devilish particular about the condition of books. 
an American preoccupation was noted by uh, W. Carew Hazlitt in his book, The Book Collector, published in 1904. The American customer, he said, grows more fastidious every day, adding that they go so far as to return purchases, not answering the description in the auctioneer's catalog. This preoccupation with condition had received fresh impetus at the end of the century when there developed a growing interest in collecting 19th century books in original condition as issued in wrappers, boards, original cloth or whatever rather than rebound, however sumptuously. Books, whether bound in leather or cloth, are most likely to stay in good condition if they remain unread. The point is an obvious but relevant one, for it is also true that if many second-generation American book collectors never read their books, there was another older class of American collectors who did, scholars who could not get the books they needed from public or institutional libraries and who therefore bought their own. The names Thomas Jefferson, the historian Jared Sparks, George Tickner, and William Prescott come to mind immediately in this connection. Another and closely related class of American book collectors in both early and later 19th century America included the man who developed ambitions to form and, and endow a research library and who also thus bought books which he expected to be read, Isaiah Thomas, but also Andrew Dixon White of Cornell, Adolph Sutro of San Francisco. Their attitude towards rarity and condition tended to be tempered by utilitarian concerns. The number of book collectors in turn of the century America was clearly on the increase. This is preeminently the age of collectors, wrote Henry Harper in 1904. Carl Cannon, author of the classic history of American book collecting, called this the golden age of American book collecting, the period extending from the late 80s to the First World War, when a critical taste, maturity of judgment, and exact knowledge of books were typical of the leading American collectors, he said. One of the reasons for the increase in the number of book collectors towards the end of the century was simply that there was more American money available for collecting. In the decades before and after 1900, the American rich grew rapidly richer, not only because of a rapidly expanding national economy, but also because their slice of the economic pie grew wider. In 1890, the richest families in America, the top 1.6%, received about 11% of the national income. By 1910, 20 years later, that same group was receiving nearly 20%, up from 11. And in 1910, there was no income tax in America at all. Collectively, this group had a great deal of money to spend on books. There were also more books for them to buy, thanks in part to the large number of major sales of libraries taking place in England in the 1880s and thereafter, enabled by sweeping changes in the laws governing the sale of entailed property, in particular the Settled, the Settled Lands Act of 1882, changes generally associated with the name of Hugh Cairns, later Lord Cairns. I'm now going to embark on an extended parenthesis on the subject of the Cairns Acts. Until very, fairly recently, I'd assumed that before the 1880s, one could entail a British estate, a library, or an art collection to prevent its sale by one's heirs, whom one tended to distrust intensely, if not actively dislike. 
I assumed that the Settled Lands Act abolished such entails and that certain noble and other land-holding possessors of such entailed libraries and art collections celebrated the changes in the law by disencumbering themselves of their books and pictures forthwith, often in order to take the proceeds to the racetrack, gaming table, and other resorts of society and leisure offered by the time. My attitude was, I suppose, formed largely by reading Victorian novels. But recent expeditions into British legal history have changed my attitude towards both the purpose and effects of the Cairns Acts. The facts, if I have them right, were these. Before 1926, you could, uh, you could not entail personal as opposed to real property in England. Until 1926, that is, entail was restricted to land and it was not possible to entail personal possessions. There was, however, an exception to the pre-Cairnsian laws governing personal and real property. Certain kinds of personal property closely allied to the land could be attached to it as heirlooms and entailed as real property. Thus one might entail the fish in the manor house pond, or the deer in the park, or the swans in the lake, or the inherited furniture of the principal mansion house, furniture which might include books. In the 1880s, more than half of the land in England was held in strict settlement. The intention of the Settled Lands Act of 1882 was to render such estates more profitable to its life tenants, that is, to those on whom they were entailed. Before the cluster of acts passed between 1882 and the end of the decade associated with Lord Cairns, there were strict limitations on what the life tenant could do with his land. And perhaps I should say, as a parenthesis, within the parenthesis, what is happening here very simply in a, a generations-old attempt to keep property together was that you bequeathed your property not to your children but to your grandchildren and left your children as the tenants on estates which were owned by their children. The same thing would happen a generation later when your children were old enough to be interested in preserving the estate. They then bequeathed it to their grandchildren, leaving their children as life tenants. There were strict limitations on what the life tenant could do with the land. He could not sell it, even if it lost money. He could not grant long leases. He could not generally exploit its mineral resources, and he had few incentives to improve the land itself, supposing he had the capital to do so, because he had insufficient control over the income arising from such improvements. The Act of 1882 gave the life tenant considerable powers over the management of his land, while at the same time safeguarding capital. It facilitated the striking off from the land of fetters imposed by settlement, and it shifted the effect of settlement from the land itself to the purchase money that might be obtained from it. Furthermore, the life tenant could now sell heirlooms. Remember, they were real, not personal property. In order to devote the land, excuse me, in order to devote the money derived from their sale to improving the estate and releasing other encumbrances on it. He could not simply sell the heirlooms and buy uh, fast women and slow horses with the proceeds. That is, he could not derive personal benefit from their sale, but he could arrange for the alienation 
of an unwanted and unproductive asset, exchanging it for one that did produce income. Before he could sell, the owner needed the permission of the court. The act did not set forth the principles which were to govern the court's discretion in allowing the sales of heirlooms, but in practice the court tended to give the tenant for life wide discretionary powers in deciding upon such sales. Not all large family libraries in England in 1880 were entailed, to be sure, nor were they by any means exclusively owned by large landholders. But the long English agricultural depression of the late 1870s had an obvious impact on all sectors of society, on industry and commerce, as well as agriculture, particularly damaging at a time when British manufacturers were beginning to experience fierce competition from the newly industrialized continent. In the 1880s, then, there were many incentives to sell books, and in rapid succession occurred the Sunderland-Blenheim sales, 1881-83, the Beckford-Hamilton Palace sales, 1882-83, the Storehead Hoare sales, 1883 and 1887, the Gosford and Syston Park sales, 1884, the Osterley Park sale, 1885, the first Phillips sales, 1886-89, the Severn sale, which included the library of Michael Woodhull, 1886, Lord Crawford sales, 1887-89, and so on. The number of sales grossing £10,000 or more in the single decade of the 1880s was greater than the combined total of the rest of the century. And the sales as a whole put the largest number of certain kinds of books on the market since the bibliographical disruptions of the Napoleonic era. The sales of the 1880s had a number of features in common. One, they tended to consist of libraries formed several generations earlier, in the early 18th century, for example, in the case of the Sunderland Library, in the, in the early 19th century, in the case of the Beckford Library, heirlooms, in fact, not current collecting preoccupations of living men or their families. Two, the libraries sold tended most notably to gain to contain 15th century books, early editions of the classics, early English printing, including Caxton, and literature, including Shakespeare, as well as fine bindings. And three, the consigners tended to be substantial landholders whose incomes had been adversely affected by a grim succession of bad harvests in the second half of the 1870s, as well is by competition from American agriculture, and who took advantage of the changes affected by the Cairns Acts to improve their estates by cashing in heirlooms and converting the proceeds to income-producing assets. Further, four, the dominant presence at the sales of the 1880s was unquestionably Bernard Quaritch, who by now had many American clients interested in precisely the sort of books being offered at these sales, and who as a result uh, and as a result, five, many of the books ended up either immediately or shortly thereafter in America. There were, of course, many other dealers at these sales besides Quaritch, but they too had American customers. It had long been recognized in England that Americans were virtually unbeatable in the field of Americana. Now the Americans were everywhere in the market, not only in books, of course, but also, and more importantly than not to us, in pictures. American bibliographical avarice was broadly based. In 1896, W. Roberts observed in his book, Rare Books and Their Prices, that the Americans were uh, also draining England of works relating to British genealogy and county history, 
a phenomenon was occurring, in fact, which has relatively few parallels in modern book collecting history. The comprehensive and systematic collection by book collectors in one country of the literature and history of another. In looking at the collecting interests of late 19th and early 20th century American collectors, one is struck by the great number of them with a serious interest in English literature, history, and printing, especially of the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, and again of the 19th and later, and soon enough, the 20th. One thinks of Horace Furness Sr., Robert Ho, Raiden Ives, John Henry Wren, William White, Frederick Halsey, Alfred Chapin, Beverly Chu, William Bixby, Herschel V. Jones, John Clausen, and, and most of all, that formidable trio, Henry Clay Folger, J. Pierpont Morgan, and Henry E. Huntington, with whom we arrive at the third generation of American book collectors. Folger began to collect seriously in the 1890s, as did Morgan, whose father had died in 1890. Huntington gathered steam a few years later, shortly after the turn of the century. The three men bought early English literature by the Carrick load, whole libraries at a time. Folger bought the book collections of Marston Perry, much of which had come from Hallowell Phillips. He bought the collections of Lord Warwick and important Shakespeare editions from the libraries of the Bishop of Truro, Lord Howe, and William White. J. J. Pierpont Morgan bought the libraries of Theodore Irwin, 11 more Shakespeare quartos, Richard Bennett, which included William Morris's library, and Lord Amherst's Caxton's. Henry Huntington bought the libraries of E. Dwight Church, which included what Church had kept of the Rofant Library, the Bridgewater House Library, the English literature in the libraries of Beverly Chew and Frederick Halsey, plus important parts of the libraries of the Duke of Devonshire, the Earl of Pembroke, Sir Thomas Phillips, Alfred Christie Miller, Robert Ho, Ralph Ellsworth, and Otto Faubert. Folger Morgan and especially Huntington dominated the book-collecting scene in the United States from the beginning of the 20th century to the Depression of the 1930s. But there were many other notable collectors of English literature and related subjects during the period. Beverly Chu himself, William Arnold, George Armour of Chicago, like Folger and Huntington, born in the 1850s, Daniel Barclay Updike, Frank Bemis, Herschel V. Jones, and Albert Bender, born in the 1860s, Albert Berg, A.S.W. Rosenbach, William Andrews Clark, Carl Forzheimer, born in the 1870s, and Harry Elkins Widener and Jerome Kern, born in the 1880s. The collecting interest of this, the third great generation of American book collectors, was broad to begin with and expansionary in its instincts. A. Edward Newton made 18th century English literature fashionable. John Quinn collected the manuscripts of living writers, such as Conrad and Joyce. Dr. Harvey Cushing, Dr. Harvey, Dr. Harvey Cushing, excuse me, following the lead of his mentor, Sir, Sir William Osler, collected the history of English medicine. David Smith collected the history of mathematics. George Plimpton, the history of education. Harry Houdini acquired materials on magic and spiritualism. Arthur Schomburg put together the collection of black history, which is now the core of the New York Public Library Schomburg Center. Wilbur Macy Stone collected children's books. Catherine Bidding collected cookbooks and books about food. Her collection is now at the Library of Congress. The greatest sale of the period, if not indeed the greatest sale ever held in America, was that of the Library of Robert Ho in New York, the sales beginning in 1911. 
It was the first American sale to attract a large number of European dealers, and the nearly two million received remained the record for an American sale in absolute terms until long after the Second World War, and in real terms, probably realized more than any other sale in American history. Henry Huntington dominated the sale, spending more than a million dollars in all at the various sales. His purchases at this and other sales, combined with his private purchases of libraries in bulk, prompted several sales of Huntington duplicates in the mid-teens, sales held in New York which fueled the ambitions of many other collectors who became active at this time, notably including William Clements, either directly or through such dealers as Rosenbach, rapidly <coughs> achieving an ascendant position in the American trade. John Carter has pointed out that the trade in antiquarian books is sometimes cyclical. The Beckford, Sunderland, Syston Park, and other sales of the 1880s enabled a whole generation of collectors, including C. Fairfax Murray, Robert Hoe, and Brayton Ives, whose books in turn eventually became available to Huntington and the third generation of American collectors. These cycles continue, however, only so long as the books remain in circulation. When they are institutionalized, the cycle is interrupted. For the past century and a quarter, one of the dominant patterns in the movement of books has been from English and continental dealers and auction sales to American collectors, and then, either directly or at one or two removes, into American libraries. For several decades, especially since World War II, American libraries were very active as principals in the antiquarian book trade, both in the United States and abroad. It remains the case that the most important source for rare books in practically all American institutional collections is gift, not purchase. That this has always been the case with American libraries, even in the 1950s and 60s, and that it is still true today. Consider the book collector's problem. As Charles Tannenbaum once elegantly put it, collectors must, must eventually face their own inevitable personal deaccession. Book collectors have a choice. They can either make arrangements during their lifetimes for the disposition of their treasures, or they can bequeath them to their heirs, either to other individuals or to an institution. If they decide to alienate their collection during their lifetimes, they again have two choices. They can either sell their collection or give them away. They may have one or more of many reasons for wishing to sell. They may simply need the money. The Brooklyn collector Thomas Field put together an important collection on the American Indian in the 1860s, for example, on which he based his excellent bibliographical writings on the subject, but his fortunes declined, as many American fortunes did, in the 1870s, and he was forced to sell his library at auction through Sabin. Another reason why collectors may need to sell is so that they can pay their book bills, so that they can buy more books. This seems to have been the pattern employed on occasion by Herschel V. Jones, who assembled and dispersed several libraries during his lifetime. Book collectors sometimes sell books simply because they need the room. The great St. Louis book collector William Bixby arranged two sales of duplicates with no less a partner than Henry Huntington in 1916 and 1917 for this reason. Sometimes a collector will sell his books to prove a point, William H. Arnold disposed of his collection of 19th century American first editions and original bindings at auction in New York in 1901. It was one of the first major sales of such materials in such condition to be sold, and prices set many new highs and set many collectors to thinking. 
Arthur Houghton was to do exactly the same thing two generations later with his, with his uh, Oriental books. Collectors sell their books because they have changed the focus of their collecting interests. Charles W. Fredrickson collected Shakespeare after the American Civil War until he became convinced that the plays were written, in fact, by someone else. He then sold his Shakespeare collection and, in the 1870s, began collecting 19th century English literature, including Keats, Coleridge, and Shelley. He was one of the first Americans to do so. Similarly, in 1900, Beverly Chu sold his collection of American literature to Jacob Chamberlain so that he could concentrate exclusively on English literature. This collection went in turn to Huntington in 1912. Collectors may sell their books because they lose interest in book collecting altogether. Jerome Kern sent his books to auction in 1929 for this reason, through good luck or astuteness, hitting the top of the market just before the great crash. Unfortunately, he invested the proceeds of his sale in the stock market just in time to lose most of it. Sometimes collectors will sell their books because their heirs have no interest in the collection and because they believe that they can get more for the books than their spouse or children could after their death. William Menzies put his collection up for sale in 1876 for this reason. Some collectors sell their books, as did Menzies, long before they die. Others arrange for a posthumous sale. The Boston banker Frank Bemis bequeathed the proceeds from the sale of his library of English and American literature. They went to Rosenbach in, 18, in 1935 to the Boston Children's Hospital. Perhaps the most frequently cited reason for planning the sale of one's books is to give other collectors the chance to enjoy collecting the books that gave the present owner so much pleasure. To keep the game alive, Robert Ho and A. Edward Newton, among many others, made statements to this effect. And Nicholas Basbanes, in his new book, Patience and Fortitude, tells us that this attitude is by no means dead. The Chicago book collector, Abel Berlin, had the same plan, and his great collection of books came up for auction uh, not so long ago in uh, Berlin's hope that other collectors could enjoy the books that he had enjoyed keeping uh, for so long. Related to the keep the game alive conviction is a suspicion that institutions do not take as good care of books as individuals do. There was widespread dismay, for example, when the Lenox Library was amalgamated into the newly formed New York Public Library in the 1890s, and its identity submerged in a way that would have excessively irritated James Lennox. Once, for whatever reason, collectors have decided to sell their books, yet again they have a number of options. They can sell their books privately to another individual, as Edward Assay did to Thomas Irwin, and as Irwin in turn did to J. Pierpont Morgan. Collectors can sell their collections to a dealer, as did, the Frank, as did the heirs of Frank Bemis, or they can give them to a dealer on consignment, as did Clement Bemis to the infant A.S.W. Rosenbach as a form of encouragement. They can sell them to an institution, as Peter Force did to the Library of Congress, and they can sell them either at full price or, as in the case of Owen D. Young, uh, to Dr. Albert Berg at a substantial discount because Young knew that the Berg collection would eventually go to the New York Public Library. And finally, book collectors can sell their books at auction. Either through private or public transaction, collectors have a variety of ways of selling their books during their lifetime. The other major option that collectors have in disposing of their books is to give them away, either before or after their death. 
They may, of course, simply leave them to their heirs, and though there are relatively few instances, at least in America, of much interest by the heirs in such collections. The spectacular exception to that, of course, is uh, J.P. Morgan and his son. The Morgan Library is, in fact, given to the citizens of New York, not by J.P. Morgan, but by his heirs. Collectors may therefore decide to give or leave their books to an institution, an intention which is likely to be warmly encouraged by the institution itself. Most American institutions are of relatively recent formation, and a lack of books is the most obvious problem facing a newly established library. Poverty of local library resources prompted James Logan to bequeath his substantial collection to the city of Philadelphia in the 18th century. George Tickner gave many of his books to Boston Public Library for the same reason during the first two decades in the middle years of the 19th century. Adolf Sutro intended to establish a great research library on the European model for the citizens of San Francisco. Henry Huntington had much the same idea for Southern California. Many book collectors have been employees of libraries or universities, and often they presented their institutions with their personal collections, either by gift or bequest. Daniel Willard Fisk, first librarian of Cornell University, gave the major portion of his extensive collections of Italian literature to this institution. David Smith was a professor at Columbia who gave his great mathematics collection uh, to that institution. James Babb, librarian at Yale, presented that university with its Beckford collection. Other donors have been trustees of their institutions. Henry Durant of Wellesley, Cyrus McCormick of Princeton, John White of Cleveland Public Library. American donors have presented or bequeathed their collections to their colleges or universities for many reasons, not least of which is that they were asked to do so. In 1924, Chauncey Brewster Tinker put forth a celebrated and enormously successful call to the Yale alumni for gifts of books. Responses came from David Wagstaff, Frederick Dixon, Richard Gimbel, Harvey Cushing, Wilmoth Lewis, among many others. Later, James Osborne. A collector may give books to an institution in order to establish a monument to himself or to others. William, Andrew, William Andrews Clark Jr.'s collections at UCLA are a memorial to his father, a man of the same name. George Herbert Palmer gave his collection of 19th century English poetry to Wellesley College in memory of his wife, Alice Freeman, the first president of the college. William Loring Andrews gave his 15th century books, many of them acquired at the 1886 Severn sale to Yale in memory of his son, who died young. In the 1930s, Mr. and Mrs. Howard Chapin established the, the splendid Peter Chapin collection of books on dogs at the College of William and Mary in memory of their beloved cocker spaniel, Peter. The first curator was a man named Shepherd. <laughs> the memorial may be to the book collection itself, the John Carter Brown Library at Brown University being the most obvious example, but there are others. The remarkable Browning collection at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, for example, as much or more a shrine as it is a collection of books, and the equally remarkable monument to Francis Bacon as author of Shakespeare and otherwise, established by Walter Ehrensberg at the Claremont Colleges and now at the Huntington. Sometimes the donor wishes to influence educational policy. Alexander Smith Cochran gave his important collection of Shakespeare folios and quartos to establish an Elizabethan club at Yale where students could meet 
as they do to this day, for literary conversation amidst congenial surroundings. Alfred Chapin assembled a collection of the written monuments of American and European civilization and presented it to Williams College so that its students would have the opportunity to see the original forms of such books. Sometimes the gift of the collection is directly attached to the gift of the collector. William A. Speck became curator of the German literature collection at Yale when he transferred his Goethe collections to New Haven in 1912. Ralph Ellis went with his ornithological collections to the University of Kansas. Philip Hofer and his great graphic arts collections together ornamented the Houghton Library at Harvard. Sometimes a collector gives his books to a library as a token of gratitude. Lessing J. Rosenwald presented his wonderful collections of illustrated books to the Library of Congress in partial thanks to the nation which had enabled his family and him to amass their substantial Sears Roebuck fortune. Philip Mills Arnold bequeathed not only his considerable rare book collection of rare books, but also the funds that enabled his alma mater, Washington University, to buy Charles Gould's great collection, the, the Great Triple Crown Collection, that uh, has been on display at WashU for the past six months. The tradition continues. Sometimes a collector may place materials in an institution where it is especially appropriate, as did the Wren family when it gave the University of Texas the extensive correspondence between John Henry Wren and T.J. Wise. Or similarly, when Mrs. Frederick Meek presented her husband's collection of John Greenleaf Whittier, the most complete in private hands, to Whittier College near Los Angeles. On occasion, material goes to an institution because the owner believes that it should be in public rather than private hands. In 1949, Fritz Kreisler gave the score of Brahms' Violin Concerto to the Library of Congress so that it be could become a public treasure available for international use. Regional history collections are often given locally because of the appropriateness of the subject. Thus, the Burton Collection of Midwestern Materials, now in the Detroit Public Library, and William Darlington's collection of materials on the history of Pittsburgh, presented by his heirs to the University of Pittsburgh, many of which are now in the Book Arts Press Collection owing to a reformatting project. A more generalized civic pride may be the case of, of uh, the gift of a collection. Philadelphians uh, Hampton Carson and William Elkins gave their history and literature collections to the Free Library of Philadelphia because of their love of that city. Some collectors have formed collections for the express purpose of presenting them to an institution. Albert Bender, for example, established rare book libraries at Mills College, Stanford University, and, and UC Berkeley as a means of encouraging a love of books in the Bay Area. Sometimes a collector makes a presentation in honor of a special occasion. Daniel Fearing gave his superb fishing collection to Harvard to mark the occasion of the opening of the Widener Library. A generation later, in 1942, and again at Harvard, William King Richardson gave his important collection of illustrated books and bindings to the university to mark the opening of the Houghton Library. Sometimes a collector presents a collection to an institution because he fears for the book's safety at home. Morris Parrish had such high standards for the condition of the Victorian writers he collected that the term Parrish condition uh, has entered the vocabulary of the antiquarian book trade. After fire in his house threatened the condition of his books, however, Parrish made arrangements to transfer the collection to Princeton. Gifts to institutions are sometimes the results of friendships which develop between collectors and librarians. Clara Peck and Catherine Bryson, the librarian of Transylvania College in Lexington, Kentucky, were friends. 
Miss Peck's celebrated sporting collections went after her death to Transylvania. Similarly, the friendship between John Perkins and Dorothy Drake, librarian at Scripps, one of the Claremont colleges, resulted in his fine printing and related collections going to Scripps Denison Library. On occasion, collectors give their collections to an institution to avoid personal bankruptcy. Thomas Gilcreath went deeply into debt in assembling his important collections of books, paintings, and artifacts on the American Indian. The citizens of Tulsa, Oklahoma, voted a bond issue to buy the collections and set up a museum in that city and to pay Gilcreath's debts. And finally, sometimes collectors may give their books to an institution for tax reasons, because it was impossible for tax reasons not to, and this I shall return to shortly. But first I need to catch up with another one of my options for the dispositions of a, a, a collection, that which operates when a collection is left in the family, or where for other reasons it devolves on another individual. The new possessor must, like the old one, decide whether to retain the collection, to sell it, or give it away. The heirs of E. Dwight Church sold his library to Huntington. Norton Q. Pope sold his wife Abby Pope's books en bloc to the antiquarian booksellers Dodd Mead after her death. Dodd Mead, in turn, sold most of them, including the Caxton Mallory, to Robert Ho. The inheritors of a collection may have many good reasons for selling it, as opposed to giving it away or keeping it in the family. They may need the money, and whether they need the money or not, they may believe that, that the money foolishly spent in making the collection should be redeemed and put to better purposes. Collections are sometimes sold in ways which honor the informally known wishes of the collector. In 1873, Thomas Barton's widow put his Shakespeare collection up for sale, but he had wanted the collection kept together, and she eventually reduced her price in order that it could go en bloc to the Boston Public Library. The great series of Brindley sales, beginning in 1879, uh, was conducted with the provision that five institutions would receive sums varying from $2,500 to $10,000 with which to bid on these sales. Sometimes the disposition of a library is left to a trust which goes into operation upon the death of the collector. In this way, Melbert Carey's collection of playing cards went to Yale and many of Elizabeth Ball's children's books to Indiana University. On occasion, the heirs present the collector's books to an institution as a memorial to the deceased as did Mrs. Widener to Harvard after the death of her son, Harry Elkins Widener, in the sinking of the Titanic, and as did Horace Furness, Jr., the library of his father, the editor of the Shakespeare Variorum, to the University of Pennsylvania. Heirs are, in fact, at least as likely as the collectors themselves to give their collections to institutions, and it has certainly been the case in the United States for the past century or so that books have tended to gravitate by gift to institutions. I have myself visited all of the collections which I have thus far described, and I can assure you that there are a great many other institutional collections and rationales for them which I could have mentioned. But I must now turn to what I believe to be the biggest single reason of all for the movement of American-owned books into American institutions, one which came into existence with changes in the U.S. income tax laws occurring in 1917. The United States had levied a federal income tax during the Civil War with the maximum rate 10% of income. But I am happy to inform you that the federal government ran a surplus for every year without exception between 1866 well into the 1890s, and that the income tax was repealed in 1872. The chief sources of, of revenue for the government 
were then customs duties and taxes on alcohol and tobacco. With the depression of the mid-1890s, an attempt was made to reinstate the federal income tax, but the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that federal income taxes were unconstitutional. Their matter stood until 1913, when income taxes were permanently enabled by an amendment to the U.S. Constitution and reimposed in that year. The original intention of the reimposition was to tax only the very rich, and then only very slightly. The 1913 income tax levy affected only those with an annual income in excess of $3,000, that is, something in the neighborhood of about $50,000 today. And the maximum tax was 7% of income, and this for those whose incomes were in excess of half a million dollars a year, in today's terms, about $9 million a year, 7%. This rate, by the way, was only slightly lower than the approximately 8% upper brackets imposed by England at the same time. John D. Rockefeller opposed income taxes, saying that when a man has accumulated a sum of money within the law, that is to say, in the legally correct way, the people no longer have any right to share in the earnings resulting from that accumulation. But in 1913, Rockefeller's advice was ignored by the U.S. Congress and the states, and a good thing, too, since U.S. customs duties sank rapidly after 1914 because of the worsening international situation and the government was in desperate need of operating funds, a need made still greater by the country's decision to rearm. The income tax began to be used as the primary device for increasing government revenue, as it still is. The Revenue Act of 1916 raised income taxes substantially, and the 1917 Revenue Act added further sharp increases, especially at upper levels, increasing the maximum tax to 67% of income for those with annual incomes in excess of a million dollars a year. John D. Rockefeller opposed income taxes, as I pointed out, and you can see why. This rate, 67%, was so high that there was considerable fear in the United States Congress that private philanthropy would suffer. And so, and for the first time in 1917, deductions to one's gross annual income were allowed for gifts to religious, scientific, educational, and charitable foundations, deductions that were expanded with the 1918 Revenue Act, which raised the upper limit of income tax taxation to 77%. For the next half century, the top rate stayed at 50% or higher, climbing to an all-time high of 94% in 1944. The rich were not without their resources in protecting the disposition of their incomes from such punishing tax levels. To the extent that they chose to make charitable contributions, the federal government simply became their partners. In the 50% tax-exempt bracket, the donor pays half and the government pays the other half. In the 70% bracket, the donor pays less than a third. But this is less than a third of the gift's present value, not the cost of the original purchase. The result is that it may finally be cheaper to give away a collection of books to an institution than it is to sell it, especially if the collection was acquired many years before and prices have risen since then, either in fact or because of inflationary pressures. The arithmetic arithmetic changes from decade to decade as Congress changes limits on income and capital gains taxes, but for most of the 20th century, taxes had a vital role to play in the determination of the disposition of book collections. 
a theoretical example may be illustrative. Mr. Allworthy formed his great collection of high-spot first editions in the Depression, buying wisely at such sales as those of Mortimer Schiff and A. Edward Newton when prices were low. In 1974, Mr. Allworthy, feeling the weight of his now more than 80 years, dis decided to dispose of his collection. A book dealer immediately offered to pay him $400,000 for it, an amount which rather staggered Mr. Allworthy, who had been out of the market for nearly two decades. <clears throat> Years before, he had paid a total of only about 40000 for the books. His capital gains on the collection, if he sold it in 1974 for $400,000, would be $360,000. With a 25% capital gains tax, Mr. Allworthy would face a tax bill of $90,000 on the sale. If he sold, his profit on the whole transaction would then be the 400000 he would receive from the collection from the book dealer, minus the 90000 tax bill, and also the minus the 40000 he originally paid for the books, a net profit of $270,000. But Mr. Allworthy was a rich man in a 70% tax bracket. He discovered that if he gave his collection over a period of several years to an institution, the actual cost of the gift to him would be its original cost of 40000 plus 30% of its uh, current 400000 value, 120000 for a total of 160, since he would be relieved of the burden of paying 280000 in income taxes over the period of the gift. It would then cost him $160,000 to make a gift worth more than twice that amount, to, say, his alma mater, an institution he had in any event planned to remember generously in his will. As it happened, the rare book librarian of his alma mater pointed out to Mr. Allworthy that while the book dealer had offered him 400000 for the collection, its present replacement value was in fact much more. The dealer, of course, had offered a wholesale price. <coughs> a second, perfectly respectable appraiser was found for, willing for tax purposes to appraise the collection at $600,000. The cost to Mr. Allworthy would then be his original 40, plus 30% of the new appraised value, 180, for a total of 220, for which in return he would be relieved of the necessity of paying 70% of the 600,000 value, or 420,000. Net profit, 230000 or only 90000 less than he would receive had he sold the collection outright to the dealer for 400 In short, presenting his alma mater with a collection worth well over half a million dollars would cost him less than one-fifth that amount. Accordingly, Mr. Allworthy gave the collection to his old college, where it is now one of the principal glories of its rare book department. Mr. Allworthy is fictitious, but he is based on J.K. Lilly. The arithmetic is quite similar. The arithmetic for the U.S. income tax since 1917 has thus consistently encouraged giving book collections, especially long-established ones, to institutional uh, collections, educational institutions in particular. It would be virtually impossible to determine the extent the tax law encouragement alone has resulted in such gifts, for there are a great many other reasons, as I suggested earlier, which may contribute to collectors' decisions to present their books to an institution. What can be determined is the approximate percentage of collectors during any given time period who sold their collections as opposed to the percentage of those who during the same period gave them away. 
In order to do this, I used a database of about 375 American book collectors, deriving my evidence first from Canon's American book collectors and then with additions from more recent sources, in particular Donald Dickinson's useful American book collectors. Determining the birth and death dates of these collectors was, for the most part, routine. Establishing whether they sold or gave their collections away was considerably more tricky, the more so in that about a quarter of them either did both, selling some and giving some, or neither, in that they simply left their collections to their heirs. But of the three quarters who clearly did either sell or give, uh, there is plenty of evidence to work with, and in fact certain patterns emerge as follows. Of those book collectors born in the decade of the 1820s, that is, collectors who might generally be expected to have disposed of their collections 60 or 70 years later, towards the end of the 19th century, 67% sold their collections, while 11% gave them away. Of those collectors born in the 1830s, 53% eventually sold and 26 gave. Of those collectors born in the 1840s, 43 sold and 31 gave. Of those in the 1850s, 41 sold and 50 gave. In the 1860s, 39 sold and 47 gave. In the 1870s, 23 sold and 62 gave. Of the 1880s, 27 sold and 59 gave. Of those born in the 1890s, 4% sold their collections, 81% gave them away. To repeat, the percentages of those who gave their collections decade by decade, 1820s, 11%, 1830s, 26, 1840s, 31, 1850s, 50, 1860s, 47, 1870s, 62, 1880s, 59, 1890s, 81. At the moment, my data stops with the generation born in the 1890s. Interpreting the data for those collectors born in the 20th century is difficult because many members of their generation are still active, or in any event, have not yet disposed of their collections, or their heirs have not. But the trend, at least until the 1970s, is overwhelmingly clear. Throughout the 20th century, more and more American book collectors gave their collections away rather than selling them. My data almost certainly exaggerates the facts to some extent. I am much more likely to have data on collectors whose collections are fairly well known, and as a result, I know more about collections that were presented more or less with fanfare to institutions. Accompanied by a trail of exhibitions, catalogs, and news reports, than I am about collectors who quietly sold their collections to a dealer or who put them up for an auction anonymously and who never advertised the fact of their ownership to begin with. But even making very substantial allowances for the skew in my data, the sequence of percentages of givers, decade by decade, 11, 26, 31, 50, 47, 62, 59, 81, is very suggestive indeed. Is it all a matter simply of public policy, I wonder? Beginning in the 1880s, changes in British tax law encouraged the owners of libraries to disperse them at a time when Americans were beginning to collect seriously just the kind of books that were being sold off there ensued a golden age of American book collecting between 1876 and 1911 or thereabouts. Beginning in 1917, changes in American tax law encouraged the owners of private libraries to give books and money as charitable contributions to institutions, and they did. And so, thank goodness, they still do.
Thank you very much. There's a reception immediately following in the lounge, and uh, we have a spectacular toy for you to play with. Nicholas Pickwold will uh, correct my information, but uh, a Hanseatic ship went down off the uh, coast of Plymouth in the 18th century carrying a cargo of 18th century diced Russia leather intended for the binding trades. The leather was recovered recently. The skins are available in such quantity that they are being sold into private hands. And uh, Nicholas uh, very kindly accepted our commission to buy us one. So we have a whole 18th century diced Russia calfskin for you to look with. Now the interesting part of this is that all the old books are at pains to tell you that diced Russia has a characteristic smell caused by the birch oil used in the finishing process. But nobody in Nicholas's or my generation can ever recollect having been able to smell that thanks to the American way of alternately poaching and uh, uh, baking its books in particular. None of us have ever, ever smelled what diced Russia is, to, is supposed to smell like. But our uncertainty on this subject has come to an end because our diced Russia calfskin smells like diced Russia, and it is waiting for you in the Rare Book School classroom. <laughs> <laughs>